China and Russia are allies. How does China view the war in Ukraine? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on the Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Ken Hammond. He is a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. He's the founding director of the Confucius Institute at that university, and he is an organizer and activist with the organization Pivot to Peace. Dr. Ken Hammond, welcome back. Glad to be here. Ken, you and I have talked at length about China's foreign policy over the decades. We did a nine-part series looking at China's foreign policy since 1949. Of course, in the recent years, China's relationship with Russia has been paramount. And at the same time, China has done a lot to integrate countries in Eastern Europe into the Belt and Road Initiative. Obviously, China wants to have good relations with all the countries in Eastern and Central Europe, and at the same time, it has this very special relationship with Russia. Xi Jinping met with Putin on the sidelines of the Olympics. There was a 5,000 long word statement sort of cementing the ties or announcing how close China's relationship is with Russia. In fact, in that statement, which I wanna go over with you, they talk about the relationship has no limits. We are, hearing reports just in the last couple hours that Sergei Lavrov has been to China to meet with China's foreign minister in the eastern part of China. And the announcement has come through that China has reaffirmed the centrality of Chinese-Russian relations. It has confidence in the relations and it intends to boost the relationship. Anyway, let's just get started Obviously, this invasion or military operation, special military operation, as the Russians call it, in Ukraine, came just weeks after Putin was in Beijing at the Olympics and had those high-level meetings with Xi Jinping. Obviously, it's a conundrum for China. Let's just get your thoughts, big picture. Well, it is a big picture indeed. The relationship between China and Russia, between China and the Soviet Union in former times, you know, it's been a long and complicated one. For a long time in the 50s, it was a very close relationship with Russia, the Soviets providing a lot of assistance to China. Then there were differences between the two countries, ideological differences over the process of development that led to a real deterioration in relationships, which reached kind of a nadir in 1969 when there was actual conflict on the border between the two countries. Since then, there have been different phases in the relationship, but it basically gets back onto a more positive track, certainly by the 1980s. And then, of course, with the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union into its former constituent republics, that 
put Russia through a very, very difficult period in its own recent history. Meanwhile, China was embarking on its period of reform and rapid economic development. And that brings us up to the more recent times when China and Russia have found a number of ways in which they have shared interests, they have common interests, and that has resulted in or that has been part of a a process of increasing economic connections. China is a big purchaser of energy from Russia. It's also a big purchaser of military supplies and equipment from Russia. And, you know, it has been an important partner in Russia's economic affairs. At the same time, even as the relationship between the Russian Federation and some of the former Soviet republics has become a little more distanced, China has also developed its connections in Eastern Europe, even or particularly perhaps with Ukraine. China is Ukraine's largest trading partner, and so there's a very strong connection there, a strong economic connection there as well. And as you mentioned, a number of the countries in Eastern Europe have signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative, so it's a complex nexus of relationships. Within that, obviously, the relationship with Russia is going to be very, very important for China. They share a huge border. They have you know, a lot of common economic interests, and they also share in having a desire for global affairs, for international affairs, to be taking place outside of or out from under the long shadow of American global hegemony. Both Russia and China want to have their own independent, autonomous systems and their own ability to operate in a global context. They want to protect their own security. And they have, again, a mutual interest and a mutual perspective on that. But they also have in common that wish to be out from under American domination. And, of course, in the present context, that has been a critical feature because it has been the relentless extension of NATO, the pushing east of the NATO frontier, right up against Russia's western borders, that really has been the major precipitating factor in the tensions between Russia and Ukraine that have now eventuated in this current crisis. There's been a lot of discussion about whether China had advance warning about Russia's plans to move into Ukraine. Of course, for a long time, publicly at least, Russia was saying that they they weren't going into Ukraine. This is in those weeks and even as long as a month or more where the United States government, Biden and Anthony Blinken, were saying, yes, Russia's poised to invade. We're, we have a high degree of confidence that they're going to invade. And the Russians kept saying, no, we're not. And even the Russian foreign ministry spokeswoman made jokes about it. She said, you know, oh, we're going to invade. Tell me when so I can plan my vacation. And then she sort of laughed. I mean, they really, their public posture was, no, we're not going in. Obviously, they had a contingency plan. It didn't all happen just at the last minute. And there was the amassing of all of these Russian troops, both in in Ukraine and in Belarus. But with that said, do you think that when Putin met with Xi Jinping that I know you, you're not a fly in the wall, so you don't know exactly <laughs> what was said. But what's your guess? I mean, was Putin open with Xi Jinping and say, look, we're going to have this major military intervention in Ukraine? Or, or what do you think? 
Well, as you say, I mean, I, I certainly am not privy to that conversation or whatever discussions took place, not just between Putin and Xi Jinping, but between the Russians and their Chinese counterparts. I would be surprised if Putin had not communicated to the Chinese the reality that Russia was about to take some sort of action in Ukraine. My suspicion, and this is just based on you know reading various statements that have come out from uh, Chinese spokespersons and some of the information that's been circulating in internet sources within China, my suspicion is that he told Xi Jinping that Russia was going to undertake some actions in Ukraine, but I don't think he communicated the extent or the the depth of that action. I think that probably the Chinese understanding would have been that Russia was going to support the independence of those eastern regions, uh, the southeast part of Ukraine, the Donbass region and all that, and that Russia might get involved in helping those regions, integrating those regions into Russia, perhaps annexing them as they did with Crimea back in 2014, uh, and that that might involve some fighting and, and all that. But my impression is that, no, that Putin probably did not communicate the full extent of what we have seen take place. Whether or not that was the fully developed intention at that point, I think is you know open to some, some question. But obviously, the way things have played out has been very difficult for the Chinese. And I think that in some ways, they were a little bit taken by surprise by this, which certainly indicates that Putin did not communicate as fully as he might have exactly what, what was about to take place. I mean, we don't no, of course, with any certainty, we're trying to make the best assessment from a distance. But it, we thought here on our show, on the socialist program, that at a certain point, the Russian government, the Russian leadership decided that the U.S. was never going to negotiate in good faith, that they were going to use Ukraine as a staging ground for advanced missiles that would target Russia nuclear and conventional missiles, and whether Ukraine was moved into NATO formally or if it was a kind of de facto membership, that was secondary. But the Russians at some point decided, look, they're moving these missiles in. Once they're there and they have a flight time of just a few minutes to their Russian targets, we'll never be able to defend against them. So rather than wait and put our country in a more precarious situation, we're going to take the first action. We're going to deprive them of, of Ukraine as a staging ground. And we thought because the invasion was not just in the east, it was in the north and the south and the east. It was very wide, as you said, that perhaps the Russian expectation was that the Ukrainian military would crumble quickly, or would surrender, Zelensky would run away. And then there would be sort of a fait accompli and a new government in Ukraine that, you know, agreed to neutrality and that it wouldn't be like this upending world event. Certainly there would be sanctions and economic problems for Russia. But the way it's played out where the war started on February 24th, that's more than four weeks old, more than a month old, while there are negotiations, it continues to drag on. The United States has been able to rally all of the European countries under the U.S. banner now. There was a resolution that was passed at the General Assembly by a wide margin, but China abstained. And, and many other countries 
in Asia abstained, in Africa abstained, in the Middle East abstained. And so while most of the countries in the world voted yes to condemn Russia, the Chinese have made the point that the countries that didn't vote yes, that either voted no or abstained, and most voted to abstain, they constitute the majority of the people of the world. That would include India and China, not to mention many of the larger African countries. Anyway, perhaps that was the thinking of the Russian government, that this was going to be quick. Well, obviously it's not quick. It's gone on and on. And you can see by the way the media, the Western media is basically ganging up on the Chinese spokespersons, the foreign ministry spokespersons, taunting them. And I want to talk about some of these discussions. They're really demanding that China not be neutral, that China condemn Russia. And if they don't condemn Russia, that means they're complicit with Russia. And at the same time, China has over and over and over again said in response to the U.S. saying that the world must go based on a, a rules-based international order where the U.S. makes the rules, the Chinese have argued, no, we, we're going to adhere to the U.N. Charter, like international law. But part of the U.N. Charter says it's illegal for one country, one member state to invade another member state, go to war against another member state, except in the instance of imminent self-defense. So China, as you've said, has had to walk this line where they say we want we want a peaceful resolution. We want the war to end. We believe in the UN. And at the same time, not condemning Russia, which clearly in a formal sense, in a technical sense, certainly did violate the UN Charter by moving military forces into Ukraine. Again, we're hearing from the Chinese government, the Chinese foreign ministry. That's the foreign ministry under the leadership of Xi Jinping. But China, as we know, and as you and I have discussed, has many different trends and tendencies and factions within the party, within the government. And they're not all pro Xi Jinping. He may have had the upper hand in the last few years. He came to power 10 years ago. Anyway, the government is sort of walking this fine line, but not abandoning Russia. And as I mentioned, affirming, as it did in their discussions on Wednesday with Lavrov, that they're boosting confidence in the relationship with Russia. But they're not the only voice inside of China. Let's just talk about how this is playing in China, at least your assessment of it. Well, I think that, you know, again, for Xi Jinping, of course, this is a complicated situation because he's in the leading position and had that conversation with Putin on the sidelines at the Olympics. And, you know, everybody, of course, looks to him and he is the focus of so much, already was the focus of so much hostility in the Western media and on the part of Western politicians. So this situation, he's become even more the focus of a lot of very strong criticism. But as you say, you know, the Communist Party of China and the government of the People's Republic, these are these are not, you know, monolithic entities. These are complex political arenas, and especially the Communist Party. The Communist Party is the, the leading force in the shaping of policy, in the formulation of political positions within China. And it is a an organization that operates on the principles of democratic centralism. So it acts it speaks with a single voice, but we understand that the process of political debate and discussion within the party 
is a rich and complex one. And there are distinctive positions within the party. There are groupings, I suppose you might say. You know, no one wants to talk about factionalism, but certainly there are associations of like-minded comrades within the Communist Party. And different groupings have very clearly different perspectives on a wide range of, of issues. In the present context, one of the big issues is that for a long time, China had adopted a more sort of accommodating policy, a position, an attitude towards the United States. China needed technology and capital and other things coming in from the global economy that's dominated by the United States. And so China had, was a little more deferential towards American interests. Under Xi Jinping, that hasn't been the case. We've talked about this before. Xi Jinping has been more self-confident, more self-assertive, has presented China in the world as charting its own course to a greater degree than it certainly had been in the previous uh, few couple of decades. That's been the policy position. That's been the orientation of the, the CPC and the PRC government. But uh, there are those within the party who perhaps have not been entirely comfortable with that, have felt that the need that China still has for engagement with the global system, with the global capitalist order, in order to continue the process of economic development, in order to continue along the path of reform that they've been following, perhaps would suggest that a less confrontational attitude towards the United States might be better. And so in this present context, you know, with the situation in Ukraine, situation between Russia and Ukraine, there may be those within the party, even at the leadership levels, who see this as an opportunity to kind of push back against Xi Jinping's orientation, against the kinds of, of policies and the kinds of positions that he's really staked out. We don't know what the internal debates within the party are. Sometimes we can get glimpses of that in different publications. And, you know, you have to do a lot of that uh, sort of close reading and, and reading between the lines and all. But uh, I would not be I would not at all be surprised if there isn't some jockeying and some contention going on. We are in the run up to the next party Congress, and that will be a really important moment, both in terms of domestic policy and China's ongoing engagement with the wider world. And I think that this this is a difficult moment. And we have seen, you know, not only debate within the party, but of course, there's been debate online, even in the media about this. Some Chinese are quite concerned about the situation. Some Chinese are quite critical and have been outspoken in their criticism of Russia. So I think that it's a moment of political contention. I don't think that we're on the verge of any sort of dramatic upheaval, but I think it is within both the internal political conversation in the Communist Party and the broader conversation within Chinese society, both of which are, of course, much more lively and much more substantive than American propaganda would suggest. But in those contexts, I think that there's a lot of discussion going on. You know, Mao, Mao was the undisputed, well, not undisputed, but certainly the central leader of the People's Republic of China from 1949 until his death in the mid-1970s. Then there was the leadership of Deng Xiaoping and several successor governments. And at a certain point, in order to have stability, the Chinese government and the Chinese party adopted rules that said that nobody could be the head of state or the head of the party for more than two terms, two five-year-long terms. 
And Xi Jinping's term would be up now. He came into office in 2013. So this upcoming Congress, which ironically is called the 20th Party Congress, of course, in communist history, the 20th Party Congress in the Soviet Union was a watershed event after the death of Stalin. But in this 20th Party Congress, if there had not been a change in the rules whereby a leader was there for two five-year terms at the max, then there'd be a new leadership coming in. But we don't know whether a new leadership is coming in because as of 2018, the party amended the rules such that if someone wanted to seek a third term, someone being Xi Jinping, that would be legally permissible according to the rules. Now, that suggests, to me at least, Ken, that that there is a contention within the leadership that the Xi Jinping grouping has constituted, as you and I have talked about in the past, the move to the left within China. But there are also those who are have pursued and embraced what might be called more of a neoliberal economic model of development, including a neoliberal model that integrates China in a certain spot or a certain space in the world capitalist economic order. And, you know, obviously, if Xi Jinping's line, and there's been also the idea that there's something called Xi Jinping thought, in other words, there's amendments to the rules that says that his leadership represents something different, something distinctive. But he would not be seeking a third term at age 70 if that line was completely consolidated. Obviously, his own personal leadership appears to be decisive and significant. And thus, you know, you can see, as you said, by reading carefully or reading in between the lines, that there are this ongoing struggles that there have always existed within the Chinese Communist Party. You know, before the revolution, after the revolution, there was, of course, in the 1960s, the two-line struggle that led to the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. And then the Mao grouping, the so-called Gang of Four, who were arrested following Mao's death, and then Deng Xiaoping's leadership. Anyway, when you, when you think about what's going on, Xi Jinping is closely aligned with Russia, meaning China and Russia have overcome past differences and cemented this historic relationship, two of the biggest countries in the world. Now Russia has done something in Eastern Europe, which is obviously upsetting to China's plans to help integrate parts of Eastern Europe into the Belt and Road Initiative, its own Eurasian-based economic project. And the way the Western media is obviously aware of the same things I'm talking to you about, they're like poking, they're trying to find, is there a difference, is there a distinction? Will Xi Jinping feel compelled to condemn Russia? So far, no. So far, no. I want to read to you an amazing press briefing that was conducted by the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson with its Chinese press, but a lot of Western press. Here's the AFP, the French news agency. He says to the Chinese foreign ministry official, my question is, Given that China has not explicitly opposed Russia's invasion of Ukraine, should we assume that China therefore has no problem with this kind of indiscriminate killing of civilians? President Biden has called President Putin a war criminal. Does China agree 
that Russia may have committed war crimes in Ukraine, to which the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson says, these are a few sentences long, but I want to read them for our audience and then get you to react. On the Ukraine issue, this is his response, on the Ukraine issue, China has made its view known that the international community should focus on two things, namely peace talks and avoidance of a large-scale humanitarian crisis. We have also made huge efforts in this regard. China has proposed a six-point initiative on easing the humanitarian situation in Ukraine and has taken real actions. We will continue to provide humanitarian assistance as needed. And then he goes on, I want to stress that China's position on peace talks is consistent. You may refer to China's statements on hotspot issues, including Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Palestine. When it comes to civilian casualties and the humanitarian situation, I wonder if you were equally concerned about the civilian casualties in Iraq, in Syria, in Afghanistan, and in Palestine. Do these civilians mean nothing to you? Do not forget Serbia in 1999 or the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. Did you show any care about civilian casualties there? If not, then you are not in a position to make accusations against China. So, I mean, this is a very combative position for the Chinese foreign ministry, which, you know, 20 years ago, you would never hear a press briefing like that from the Chinese foreign ministry. It would always be something soft, something appeasing. Anyway, Ken Hammond, you followed this very closely over the years. This is somebody who's in combat, meaning the Chinese foreign ministry. Absolutely. That particular press briefing, that's back on March 17th. And Zhao Lijian, who is the spokesperson that's involved there, throughout that press conference, throughout that press briefing, there are a number of openly hostile questions from the media. And as you say, rather than sort of rolling with the punch and being very accommodating and, you know, trying to tamp things down, Zhao Lijian is, he's not taking it. And he, I think, is, he reflects the attitude of the Chinese government that, you know, these attempts to make China look bad, these attempts to condemn China, to to basically say that China might as well be invading Ukraine itself, mm -hmm. right, for the attitude that's being adopted by the Western media. And I think that that's interesting in a couple of ways. One is simply that, as you noted a few minutes ago, if you look at the countries that have abstained from or voted against the UN resolutions, although they, in terms of the number of countries, the number of votes, they don't constitute a majority within the United Nations, the populations that those countries represent are well over half of humanity. So the idea that, you know, that the United States and NATO are leading some global alliance with only a handful of sort of miscreants that won't get with the program, this is simply not, it doesn't reflect reality. But that's the message that we hear over and over and over again. Biden is praised in American media, in international uh, Western media for having, you know, united the civilized world in a sense, right? But that simply doesn't reflect 
the realities of our planet. And China comes in very selectively for criticism and condemnation here. India also has abstained. India has recently made massive purchases of oil from Russia. I mean, in the last few days, which are going to be paid for in a, an interesting rubles for rupees arrangement that's going to bypass the American imposed sanctions. So, you know, India is always trotted out by Western media spokespersons as, you know, the world's biggest democracy. And yet here they are also abstaining, also not wanting to jump on the bandwagon of condemnation. The same is true for a number of other important countries. Brazil, which of course has had a close relationship with the United States and has a very hardly what we would think of as a progressive or radical left government right now, has also abstained. South Africa has abstained. A number of African countries have abstained. Pakistan has abstained. The number of important states around the world that have tried to take a more neutral, a more nuanced position on this is significant. So that's one aspect, that the portrayal of China as sort of the problem or the issue or the one country that isn't towing the line here, that's just not accurate. But the other aspect of this, for especially for the Western media, but for Western politicians as well, is just as, again, as Zhao Lijian noted in his response to the AFP question, what about Afghanistan? What about Iraq? What about Syria? What about West Africa? What about, you know, the Philippines? All these areas in the world where the United States is involved, and especially in the big theaters in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria, where there have been massive civilian casualties, the destruction of entire villages. You know, where are the pictures of that? Where's the, the oh-so-emotionally-engaged voices of NPR reporters? You know, why aren't we hearing that? Why didn't we hear that in 20 years of destructive warfare in Afghanistan? You know, when the American government is the aggressor, when the American government is the invader, when the American government is responsible for the deaths of civilians and the destruction of infrastructure and residential neighborhoods and things like that, the American media is remarkably silent. No images, no heart-wrenching stories, no you know throat-catching narratives. But when it's Ukraine, you know, here we have this day by day, 24-7, relentless coverage that is, of course, it's heart-wrenching. No one wants to see this. No one wants to, to have these events taking place. And China has been very clear in its call for the end of hostilities and for the return to negotiations. The manipulation of public opinion by the media and by politicians, I think has been stark. And it's been such a strong contrast to the kind of go along and get along attitude that the press had towards the American government in these conflicts that have unfolded over the last 20 years and more. Yeah, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson picks up just on what you're saying as well, again, and talks about racism. I mean, it's, and again, this is distinctively different than the way China was talking 25 years ago. Maybe it wasn't different in the 1960s when China was in a very left you know, sort of phase of its own internal struggle and its political orientation towards world imperialism. But here again, I want to just read a couple more sentences from the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson. 
again, responding to that AFP person, but there's many, many other Western media. I'm just, they're typical. They're not atypical. China's position is above board, objective, and just. But the U.S., NATO, and some Western media are very hypocritical, especially as some reports smack of racism. We suggest some media focus more on more efforts on things that are actually conducive to promoting peace. They may advise the U.S. and NATO countries not to supply ammunition or to add fuel to the flame, but to sit down and build peace by talking with Europe, talking with Russia and Ukraine. And he's not wrong, Ken. I mean, what the Chinese are saying basically is, look, we care a lot about the Ukrainians. We want peace in Ukraine. We highlight it. But we also talk about the Afghans and the Yemenis and the Syrians and the Iraqis. And before that, China, which has a long and storied history with Africa, especially in the 1950s and 1960s, where you know the U.S. carried out regime change and murder and assassination. And he's right. The Western media turns a blind eye to almost all of that. Partly it's because the victims are the victims of U.S., the U.S. government, the victims of U.S. imperialism. But partly it's because of racism. And you can even hear in the Western media, they're talking about the civilized world as if, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Ukrainians who quote, as some of the reporters say, look just like the people who might be our neighbors. And the fact that this is happening and that this isn't the Middle East, this isn't South Asia, this isn't Africa, as if that would be just understandable and typical and not such a big deal in those parts of the world, but for Ukrainians and for white Europeans, a very, very big deal. I mean, the Chinese, in a way, can, it's a bit reminiscent when China helped form the non-aligned movement in the 1950s with the Bandung Conference, and China was representing the third world, so to speak, that it was a developing, emerging country that, yes, it was a communist-led government, but it was also a government that was standing up for the peoples who had been the colonized or semi-colonized people of the world. And anyway, let's just talk about that. And then I want to go back to the issue of China-Russian relations coming up before this 20th Congress in China. Of course, and we've talked about this in the past, in 1950, Chairman Mao left China for the first time, the only time he ever left China, and he came and met with Stalin, and there was months of negotiations in the, and at that time, the Soviets and the Chinese formed a friendship alliance, and it became sort of a fundamental axis of global politics in that period or that time of the world. Anyway, even though, obviously, in Russia, there's not a communist party that's a ruling party. Putin is not a communist. In fact, he's an anti-communist, according to all of his speeches of, of recent time. But they have found themselves, again, not necessarily for ideological reasons, but as allies against a common foe. Go ahead. That's a very important point to pay some attention to, because China and Russia today have very different social and economic and political systems. This isn't 
although it'd be hard to tell from some Western media accounts, this isn't a return to, you know, the socialist bloc or something like that. We've talked a lot about the idea that we are in an era of a kind of new Cold War, but that's largely a matter of the American hostility directed towards China. The relationship between China and Russia is one that's based on very practical, down-to-earth foundations, economic ones, and the desire, as we talked about a little earlier today, that both countries have not to be dominated by the United States, not to be dominated by the sort of Atlantic powers, right? So I think that that's the context in which we need to think about the Chinese-Russian relationship. It is not an ideological alliance. It's not a common political front pursuing some sort of global agenda. But it is a relationship between two neighboring countries that have many common interests, many things that they can do together, which will be mutually beneficial. But they have differing systems, and sometimes they're going to have differences in policy and differences of opinion. And I think right now we can see that that relationship, while it's important and functional for both sides, can also have its stresses and its difficulties. Again, as, as Zhao Lijian says over and over and over in his press briefings, China has been consistent in their positions on the situation in Ukraine, and their position on Ukraine is consistent with Chinese foreign policy principles, which were enunciated back in the 1950s and have been maintained ever since. Non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries, respect for sovereignty, respect for territorial integrity. Now, on one level, if you actually listen to and take seriously what people say, when China reiterates over and over again that it is committed to respect for sovereignty, respect for territorial integrity, that's not to point the finger at Russia and say, you're committing aggression, we condemn your actions. But it certainly raises the point that China doesn't believe anyone should be doing that. Russia we have to acknowledge, is doing that. You know, they are not respecting the sovereignty and the territorial integrity of Ukraine right now. There are reasons they have been provoked over the past few decades by the relentless expansion of NATO, by the clearly hostile policies directed towards Russia by the U.S. and NATO, the European Union. You know, so it's not as though this situation doesn't have its historical roots. One of the things that's also noteworthy about the long statement that was signed between Russia and China when Putin was in Beijing for the Olympics, again, it's a 5,000-word long statement. People should get the statement and read it. Unfortunately, we only hear what the U.S. media says about Russia or about China, but people should really take the time to get their hands on the documents and read them for themselves, and they're very, very illuminating. I want to read a couple more sentences, Ken, to you from that statement, because again, it's a window into the thinking of China and to Russia, because this is a joint statement. And when you hear some of the things they're highlighting about why they're, why they're developing a relationship, which they say is a relationship without limits, and you know, even that term can be misinterpreted about what that means. It's not like you know, we're in love and now we're getting married and our love is going to be deeper and deeper and deeper. And it, who knows, it has no limits. It, it's really about it can extend to all these different areas of life. Uh, that's what it means, a relationship without limits, not like boundless love, 
but rather that it can be in many, many different areas. Again, that's something that's been misinterpreted, I'd say, by the Western media. But I want to read to you what it is because it's clear that they're addressing a common problem that they have. Here we go. Russia and China stand against attempts by external forces to undermine the stability in their common adjacent regions that intend to counter interference by outside forces in the internal affairs of sovereign countries under any pretext to oppose color revolutions and will increase cooperation in the aforementioned areas. Now, let's just dissect that for people. They're talking about that the U.S. or Western external powers are using pretexts in the adjacent areas of both Russia and China to undermine the stability of those countries and that they both oppose color revolutions. Now, let's, again, for the maybe somebody who's watching this show for the first time, let's just break down. Both Russia and China are upset, worried about color revolutions and external forces using struggles in adjacent areas. I mean, these have very particular meanings. Let's break it down for the audience. When we talk about adjacent areas and about color revolutions, there are two sides of the same coin. For China, you know, we look at, for example, the provocations that are carried out routinely by the United States naval forces in the South China Seas, or even more close to home, by sailing back and forth through the Taiwan Strait, which is clearly the territorial waters of China. And both the, the government of the PRC and the local authorities on Taiwan are very clear about that. You know, there is one China. Taiwan is part of China. The Taiwan Strait is the territorial waters of China. But the U.S. Navy sails back and forth there pretty much at will. And the PLA doesn't fire on them or stop them, which I think is remarkably restrained on their part. Those kinds of adjacent territories, Southeast Asia, American efforts to try to enlist some of the ASEAN countries in the sort of containment and encirclement uh, policies that the U.S. is pursuing as part of its so-called pivot to Asia. Central Asia, countries like Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, where American political operations take place trying to, again, trying to foment a color revolution or regime change, however we want to talk about it, the recent events in Kazakhstan perhaps being yet another example of that. And for the Russians, of course, it's Eastern Europe. When the Cold War came to an end and the fraternal socialist states in Eastern Europe went through their own political transitions, there were certainly understandings, perhaps not committed into formal treaty agreements, but certainly understandings and undertakings on the part of the United States that there wouldn't be an aggressive expansion to the East. But in fact, that's exactly what has gone on in three phases of adding new members to NATO, extending the American-dominated alliance into Eastern Europe and right up to the borders of Russia. And the idea that this can just sort of go on without there being any, any pushback, any consequences, any reaction on the part of Russia is just foolish. You know, I think both Russia and China have been subjected to this kind of provocative action. And when it reached the point in Ukraine 
of declaring their intention to join NATO, I think that that put Russia into a very, very difficult position. I'm not sure that their response to that has been the most effective or the most desirable. As China has consistently said, negotiation is better. And that's the direction in which things need to move now. But it certainly is not a situation that arose simply out of unilateral desire on the part of Russia to throw its weight around. It's something that has a long and very clear history. One of the things that I found interesting in that long statement, the 5,000-word statement, is how the Chinese and the Russians are framing their own relationship. It's really, really interesting. At one point in the document, it says... They, meaning China and Russia, reaffirm that the new interstate relations between Russia and China are superior to political and military alliances of the Cold War era. Now, that's important, Ken, because China and Russia or China and the Soviet Union were in, at least in the 1950s, in an alliance during the Cold War, and it was a bloc alliance. It was the socialist bloc. And the statement goes on to say the sides, meaning China and Russia, stand against the formation of closed block structures and opposing camps in the Asia-Pacific region and remain highly vigilant about the negative impact of the United States Indo-Pacific strategy on peace and stability in the region. Russia and China have made consistent efforts to build an equitable, open, and inclusive security system in the Asia-Pacific region that is not directed against third countries and that promotes peace, stability, and prosperity. Now, when you think about these formulations, again, that might sound like euphemistic or diplomatic language. And for those who are not familiar with these kind of documents, maybe it will seem like that, a little bit out of reach. But that's one of the reasons why I want to talk about it to help people really understand what these words mean. What China is saying is like, we don't want to have a relationship with Russia at the expense or at the exclusion of other relationships like you would in a block. If you're in our block, you're not in the other guy's block and vice versa. So during the Cold War, so to speak, when there were two camps, the socialist camp, the socialist bloc, and the imperialist bloc, Poland, for instance, was in the Soviet bloc, and thus an ally, too, of China. Now, Poland is really outside of any close relationship with Russia. It's very hostile to Russia. It's a right-wing party, the Law and Justice Party. It's a big country. Poland's a big and important country in Eastern Europe. But Poland, like Ukraine are part of the Belt and Road Initiative, at least so far. And so what China is saying is we want to cultivate a relationship with Russia, which is not a mutually exclusive relationship. We really do want to have a different world arrangement such that you can have a relationship with Russia and also with one of Russia's principal adversaries, in this case, Poland. And that really is a better path towards stability and peace rather than the block system. Anyway, again, it may seem a little bit, you know, out in the ethers to talk about these documents, but I really do want to have people try to grasp what the Chinese political and worldview actually is because they're reflected in these documents. 
Yeah. Well, I think that exactly what you're trying to unpack there is really critical. It's this idea that, you know, it's not China and it's not Russia that are trying to launch a new Cold War. They're not taking the stance, especially the Chinese are not taking a stance that says, you know, you're either with us, you either do exactly what we tell you, or you're the enemy, you're going to be our enemy. Of course, China gets criticized for this too, because, for example, through the Belt and Road Initiative, through China's extension of loans and investments in countries around the world, Western media and politicians often condemn China for not imposing political conditions. Unlike the United States, you know, the Chinese don't force other countries to align themselves to conform to American policies, to conform to American, you know, diktats, and they get condemned for that. But the reality is that what they want to do is build an inclusive global system. Now, this is the whole point of the Belt and Road Initiative, to build relationships and a nexus of mutual benefit that will enhance economic development, that will improve the livelihoods of people in many, many countries around the world, including, as you note, in Europe, not only in Eastern Europe, but Italy is also part of the Belt and Road Initiative, in ways that will not be under the domination of a single power, and most particularly, not under the domination of the United States. So again, it sort of echoes back, as you mentioned earlier, to the non-aligned movement back in the 1950s and beyond. And I think that we see that in the the grouping of countries that have tried to remain aloof from American domination in this current crisis. That majority of humanity living in countries that have abstained or voted against the UN resolutions represents the wish, I think, of many, many people on the planet for a world that is more open, more sort of free-flowing, I suppose you could say, in its relationships. And that's the model that certainly is laid out in this document and that China has consistently promoted and continues to promote, even in this very stressful moment of the crisis with Ukraine. I want to go in our last topic, Ken, in our last question. And I know I know you're on a tight schedule. You are also an educator and a teacher, and you have to get back to the classroom as well. But in 1950, as we talked about, Mao and Stalin met. They forged a relationship. Ultimately, that relationship soured. There were divisions. The United States, Nixon went and met with Mao in the early 1970s. They signed the Shanghai Communique. And at that time, the United States was obviously trying to sort of accelerate the differences or the tension or the struggle between China and the Soviet Union. The U.S. was trying to play the two biggest socialist countries off of each other. And I think China and Russia are both well aware that this is a dominant part of American strategy, this kind of divide and conquer. Because if China and Russia today are allies and Russia does something like going to Ukraine, which obviously is not that great for China, which is trying to also have good relations with those same countries. You can see the way the Western media is handling it, the way the U.S. is handling it. They're trying to find a way to separate China from Russia. So here we have Lavrov in eastern China today, earlier today, and I'm talking to you on a Wednesday afternoon. But I want to go back where we started this interview and I want to read the actual words from what China said about the meeting with Lavrov. He's the foreign minister of Russia. And this is Wang Yi, China's foreign minister. He says, both sides 
Russia and China, are more determined to develop bilateral ties and are more confident in promoting cooperation in various fields. China is willing to work with Russia to take Russia-China ties to a higher level in the new era under the guidance of the consensus reached by the heads of state. So this is the absolute reaffirmation of that statement that was signed that we've been discussing and analyzing the 5,000-word-long statement. They're reaffirming it now after Russia has moved into Ukraine, something that China obviously is unhappy about. But rather than dividing the two countries, both countries are apparently, or certainly under the leadership of Xi Jinping, trying to do everything to avoid that kind of division, which will allow a declining empire that threatens both of them, and I'm talking about the United States, to become ascendant once again, based on dividing its major targeted adversaries. So the Chinese are really, really trying, in spite of all of these difficulties, to maintain and affirm and show confidence in the relationship with Russia. I can't overstate the importance of this idea by China right now under these current circumstances. And both foreign ministers denounced the U.S. sanctions on Russia as a criminal enterprise. Anyway, with that, Ken, I'm going to give you the last word. Well, I think that, again, it's the United States, President Biden, and of course the American media pretty much in lockstep on this, have been promoting this idea that, that this is the moment where America is resuming its leadership in the world. This is the moment, this is a great moment for the United States, which I think is an interesting way to spin this to begin with, because you know the United States now has emerged once again as the leader, and we've even heard the rhetoric of the free world, right? But in fact, as we've talked about earlier today, that's just not true. A majority of people live in countries that have abstained from or voted against these United Nations resolutions and that do not want to sign on to the American agenda, the American program. What the United States fears, what American elites, both economic and political, fear is the continuing erosion and decline of American global dominance. This is something that's been underway over the last few decades. It's going to continue. There are deep structural reconfigurations taking place in the global economy that mean that the United States will no longer occupy the, the basically dominant position that it held certainly after World War II and for a long time thereafter. But that age is past. And what's sad and what's dangerous is the unwillingness of American elites to recognize this and to try to find ways to move into a future of a multipolar world within which there can be shared prosperity, shared development, and actual enhancement for dealing with problems like global warming, environmental degradation, injustice, poverty, inequality, all these problems that plague the world. But instead, the United States seems dedicated to pursuing its ambition of hanging on to its power and its privileges, even in the face of you know the majority of people in the world turning away from that very agenda. So the idea somehow that this is a glorious moment for the revival of American leadership, it's delusional and it's dangerous and destructive. All right, Dr. Ken Hammond, thank you so much. 
You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 